Welcome back to Advent Next. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenault, and this month is Women's History Month, and I'm glad we're talking about it because I feel like there are several overlooked figures in the Bible who are women, and I just want to do this special in this podcast for women who might feel like it's hard to find themselves in the scriptures, right? A lot of the people of faith, uh, a lot of the prominent figures that we often hear about, we hear about David, we hear about the faith of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and Moses and, you know, Paul and Jesus and Peter and John. I mean, these are people that primarily when we talk about the Bible, we are looking at these figures. And sometimes it can be you know, it's hard to internalize a good self-image of yourself if the people who look like you and are you, uh, women, uh, are not spoken of in kind of a high regard. Now, there's a reason for this. It's not because the scriptures were trying to give a definitive view on, you know, the place of women within a society. No, far from it, contrary to that. Uh, But the Bible is written within a historical context. And in that context, what we will see is Women doing some pretty remarkable and out of the ordinary things, but the fact is, is they lived in kind of a more patriarchal society. And how did that get started? So let's take our steps and let's go all the way back to Eve. So a lot of people will look at Eve and they'll say something like, you know, she's the reason we're in this mess. If she only would not have eaten from the apple of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we never would have been here. And it's all her fault. But God didn't see it that way right? In fact, you know, and this is something that's so interesting about the gospel, is that her name means life. You know, she wasn't called to carry around the stigma and the sting of death. Her, her name, Eve, literally means life. And God is rewriting her story, just like he's rewriting all of our stories. And so something that was a very painful event for human history, or maybe especially for her personally, I know that some people have like, you know, Genesis 1 and 2, is it literal? Is it figurative? I'm not really here to discuss that. I, I'm. We could talk about that and we'll talk about that on future shows. But what I want to really highlight is the fact that this woman who, you know, some people might use that as an excuse to denigrate women because she's someone who, you know, quote unquote, brought sin into the world, um, you know, that God reorientates that position and calls her the mother of life right? And then there's also kind of this explanation that God gives saying, a lot of times we look at verses like uh, Genesis 3.15, where we're talking about, you know, uh, the curses that God gives to both Adam and Eve. And he tells Adam, you know, you're going to work the ground from the sweat of your brow. Uh, You know, it's no longer going to yield its fruit very easily for you, but you're going to have to work for it. And to the woman, he says, you know, you're going to have pain in childbirth and your husband shall rule over you. But a lot of times we don't look at that verse and we don't say, is God being prescriptive or is he being descriptive? Right? He says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Is he describing the result of sin or is he prescribing what he wants her place to be like in society from this point out? And I would argue the first. I would argue that God is describing an event. He's saying because of sin, the way that humans will now relate to power will be different, right? That the weaker will be subject to the stronger. 
And that power, physical strength, some of the more masculine characteristics of what we consider to be power, right? Uh, some of the more overt forces, uh, that that's going to be what's celebrated. And in that society, people are going to go to war, the strongest nation will win, and the most vulnerable people in that society will be women and children. And so I think God is being descriptive and saying, your husband will rule over you. No longer will you be seen as an equal, but because you are weaker, you will be despised. And hopefully not within the context of uh, the covenant in people's marriage, right? That God was giving his people an understanding of what love looked like and hopefully uh, giving them a compassion for those who are more vulnerable than them and to show that there's equality there uh, and helping them to just kind of reorientate how they just relate uh, uh, to power and to one another. But women, unfortunately, because on average, we tend to be weaker and uh, smaller than men. But like I said, on average, this is not like a, a, I know a lot of women who are, who are bigger than most men. So because of the effects that sin would have upon where we place value, he's letting her know, this is going to be your life. You're going to have to be under this person because they're the stronger. And that sets the stage for the entire Bible, really. What we go on to see are these nations competing against each other for power, right? And God at times having to display himself as a powerful person. You know, he comes down from Mount Sinai in this great display of thunder and lightning. But uh, what he wanted, and I'm sure what he desired and how he desired to reveal himself to his people was what we saw on the cross, that he is a gentle innocent lamb, right? But because that wouldn't speak to the hearts and to the values of that society, he has to show I'm a mighty God. I'm not just the gentle lamb because you wouldn't respect me. You would despise me. But I can talk to Moses because Moses sees me for who I am. I can talk to him as a friend. I can talk to Abraham because he doesn't despise my weakness. I don't have to give this grand overt display of power to get their respect. And so God loves to operate in this gentility. And when it says that God made him male and female in his image, it means that both attributes of what a woman and what a man carries and displays of themselves is a part of who God is. And so setting the stage for this society, and now the Bible is now written uh, within the context of a patriarchal society uh, as a result, because this, the fall is a because patriarchy is the result of sin, this is what I will argue. Okay, there will be some people who will be like, what are you talking about right now? But I believe that patriarchy and any type of hierarchical inequality is a result of, of sin and the imbalance uh, that happened. And it was not God's prescribed medium to save the world. It's just a result of how we now relate to power. And he has to work within that context and within those limitations. I want to talk about a few women who elevated themselves in the context of that society. And I hopefully want to give you a different perspective on women in the Bible that really the, the lack of their presence that we might see in Scripture is not a result of God's ideal. It's not a reflection of how he thinks about women. It's generally just a reflection of, of the society and the culture in which they lived. So the first person I want to talk about is Sarah. You know, Sarah is the wife of Abraham, uh, also his half-sister, which is kind of ew, but whatever. Um, she was called, her, her name meant princess, and that she was somebody who 
within that relationship and, and kind of as a model for the for the rest of the nations, that she was very much an equal within her household. Uh, she was considered a princess to all of the inheritance to which Abraham had accumulated, that she was an equal within that share. Uh, a lot of times she took took one for the team, right? That she pretended uh, to not be married to Abraham when they went down to Egypt and she was willing to be kidnapped uh, by the Pharaoh, right? In order to protect her husband and played kind of this protector type role. And I think that that's very like, it shows the strength to which she brought uh, herself to that relationship and kind of the prominence um, that maybe not a lot of women in her shoes experienced, but within the model of what the covenant that God was establishing with Abraham, uh, Sarah, and kind of even her her equality in in, for example, uh, you know, Sarah is ninety years old, Abraham is a hundred, and they're looking forward to having a son, and actually they're a few years younger than this, and they're told uh, by a messenger from God that they're going to be having a child. But, you know, Sarah's very much past uh, the age where women can bear children. And uh, the angel also includes her within that conversation. It wasn't a conversation that was excluded uh, between the men, but, you know, he he takes a notice and he tells Sarah, like, why are you laughing? Why do you think that's so funny? Uh, is anything too hard for God? And so she's very much kind of a, a really big figure uh, as as a part of the beginning of you know, this new journey within the Bible, starting from Genesis 11, and looking at the faith of the covenant people of God. The next person, you know, that we have in that is someone who's kind of of a lower status. We have Hagar, right? She is a slave of Sarah, but she is going to be bearing, uh, like kind of a, she's going to be a surrogate mother uh, to Sarah in some ways, bringing in that promised child. And a lot of things get bad, you know, it's messy. Uh, it's a polyamorous situation that doesn't go well. And she basically runs away because she's being treated so poorly. And this is the first time that, you know, God has given a name. And she calls him, you know, the God who sees, El Roy. And so here's this person, the first person to name God in the Bible is a woman. And she's saying, you see me. You see me within this structure with, that has not favored my gender. You see me within this patriarchy culture that has not favored my voice as a woman. You've seen the mistreatment. You see me. God who's, the God who sees me. And I think that's such a fitting name for who God is, especially in this time, especially for women throughout the Bible, as you will go on to see that the God who sees is the God who gives women strength because they know that they're not alone in their plight and in their suffering within that context. The next person is Sipporah. You know, she's married to Moses, but something that she does that I think is very interesting is that she also performs the circumcision. As they're going back to Egypt, you know, God calls Moses, says, go back to Egypt, tell him to let my people go. But because, you know, you know, Moses had never been circumcised, uh, but that was a part of the covenant with God. And as they're going back to Egypt, you know, there's a, a terrible sickness or a plague of some sort that comes upon them. And she is required to perform a circumcision upon her son uh, very quickly. 
And so we see that happening within, oh, and she's at least she's a part of it. Some people debate whether this was Moses or was, whether she was just accompanying them. But a lot of scholars agree that she was at least a part of the process. And so that's something that traditionally became, uh, you know, went into the hands of the men and, and of the priesthood. But we see a woman performing it. And so we see that it's not outside of God's character. It has nothing to do with uh, the fact that she's incapable or that she is impure of any sort. But it's just, it ended up being, you know, women within that practice ended up being kind of sidelined from those duties. There's a lot of reasons for why that might be. Some people say that, you know, uh, ancient Jewish custom, they believe that because women represented life, they were not to become in contact with death. So priests who were, uh, you know, uh, slaughtering animals and coming in contact with death all the time, that you didn't want the mingling of life and death. So that might be, that might have been one reason why women were excluded from the priesthood, but it didn't mean that they didn't take on other leadership roles, pastoral roles. In fact, the next person that we see is uh, is Miriam, right? Miriam is is this prophetess. She's a, a, a huge part of the deliverance of the children of Israel. She is Moses' sister and Aaron's sister, and uh, she, she leads the people of God. And so she's very much doing a pastoral role in that sense, even, I'd say, even greater than a pastoral role, right? Uh, leading millions of people out into the wilderness, and being the voice of God to them, right? Both men and women, right? And so I think that's a, 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 she's a very prominent figure that we often overlook, but her station was, you know, uh, just goes to show that just because not a lot of women ascended to that point within that, that culture doesn't mean that God saw women as not being able to, to occupy the position of a prophetess or someone who's a, a high leader, you know, within the, the children of Israel. Another one is we have Deborah. She was a judge of Israel. So after Moses and Aaron and they die off and then Joshua dies off and then they're in, you know, uh, the Canaan land, the way that they would govern, the way that they would govern themselves is they had another person be raised up like a Moses. And this person was called a judge and they would judge the people. So before they had kings, so before Saul and David, but after Moses and Joshua, uh, we have this period of the judges and Deborah was a judge. She was literally like the ruler of the entire land of Israel. And you even see, uh, Barak, who is a commander within God's army, uh, consulting her about whether to go to war with Sisera. And she says, yes, you shall go. And like, God will give you, give him into your hands. Um, and he's like, well, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. Like he esteemed her authority so much. He wasn't even going to go to war without her. So not only was she was a, was she a judge, she was a type of warrior, right? She's somebody that we don't often think about. Uh, uh, enough when we talk about the position uh, of women within the Bible and how the Bible actually, you know, takes off some of the glass ceiling uh, for women in that, you know, God used this woman. God allowed this woman to be his mouthpiece. God allowed this woman to, to be his warrior like a David in that sense. But we don't often hear about it and sometimes it gets moved to the sideline just because of the cultural undertones in which the Bible was written. Not because God esteems women less, uh, but that the constraints of the culture. The next person in that story, though, that I think is interesting 
is Deborah tells Barak, look, I'm going to give Sisera to you, but he's going to be given into the hands of a woman, Jael. And Jael literally is the person, and this is what I think is so interesting. She's the person who wins the war. She ends up killing Sisera, who is a, a commander of the, the army of the enemies. But the way that she does it was so feminine, right? A lot of times we might see, uh, we see masculine strength paraded. You know, we see brawn and bravery and very like, you know, killing the thousands. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. And we're often tempted to think that God values that type of strength. But there's also an, a different type of strength that's a feminine strength. And Jael, she goes out to Sisera and she invites him into the tent. And she says, come, come, I will hide you. And she, you know, has the softness about her and this charm. And she's like, here, drink some milk and go to sleep. You've been, you're tired. I'll hide you as, and you can get your rest. And she uses a little bit of deceit, charm, hospitality even. And when he's sleeping... I don't know if you guys know the story, but it's kind of gruesome. You know, she drives a, a nail uh, through his head, a tent peg through his head. And so she's also very brave and bold. <laughs> but she also, I think what's interesting about this story is that she uses a tool that's familiar to her, right? She is the keeper of her tent. She's probably, you know, staking down tent pegs all the time, uh, you know, as she is kind of either moving and traveling or she's having to reestablish the foundations of her home. So she uses a tool that's very familiar to her uh, to defeat the enemy. And I think that that's very like God, right? He takes us and he allows us to use the tools that are familiar to us to accomplish his purpose. And so lots of, lots of interesting takeaways from that story. Um, another person that I, I've, I've talked about in the past in a sermon was, um, Delilah, right? We often look at her and we think, we see her as the temptress. We see her as this person who is leading Samson astray. But really the story is about two strong men, two warriors. Uh, it's the battle of two different types of strength, right? Samson, he was the greatest physical warrior, right? That he could kill 10,000 people with a jawbone. Uh, he could pick up the gates of the city and run with them on his back. He was invincible when it came to meeting him on the front of physical strength. But he was met with a woman's strength. He was met with a type of charm and grace and beauty and seduction that sometimes and often accompanies women. This is a feminine type of strength. And we get to see that where all the male strength failed, all of the force, all of the brawn, all of the, uh, the, the exterior power, where that could not captivate Samson, we see a woman doing the job that no other man could do. And she gets Samson to submit to her. And so in that sense, the woman's power won out the day. But oftentimes, because of the cultural context in which the Bible was written, these types of characteristics are villainized, right? Uh, she's called a seductress. You know, sometimes they'll use the word whore, right? And it's these very derogatory uh, words to talk about a woman, even though we would never call a man something derogatory because he used his strength, right? I don't ever recall David being called, I mean, maybe the... Maybe the outcrop of that would be murder, right? For you to use your strength in a negative way 
for personal gain. He'd be a murderer, right? I don't know. But I think it's a very interesting story. We see a woman's strength win out the day. Uh, you have the story of Esther. Again, she saves an entire nation through her feminine power, through her ability to persuade a king with her feminine and female charms. So women are not just looked at in the Bible in terms of childbearing. And unfortunately, you don't get a lot of women in leadership, in, in the kind of leadership that requires more, uh, you know, um, political engagement, intellectual strength that all women are capable of, right? You see Deborah, you see Miriam, you see these different examples, but a lot of time women are being smart within their context in the way that they could be smart. In fact, you know, a lot of kings would have courts of women because they said that women contained wisdom. And so they would have this consultation of, of, of women to help them consult and how they should run their kingdom. And so just because they weren't, you know, um, doing something that seems more obviously masculine doesn't mean they weren't using their intelligence and their strengths within that context to the furthest of their ability. And Esther was somebody who did that, right? She saved her people from uh, a massacre because of the way that she was wisely able to go about telling the king about who she was and the impending danger that was going to face her people. You know, some of the obvious ones, and something that Protestantism, we don't talk about a lot, is Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? We, we tend to think that that's more of a Catholic, uh, you know, to, to celebrate Mary is, is more of a Catholic tradition. But honestly, you know, she's a teenage mother who puts her trust in God. And it's compared, especially in the book of Luke, to a priest, right? John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, the priest. And the angel comes to Zechariah and tells him that you're going to be given a son. He's going to be uh, a, a forerunner to the Messiah. And Zechariah disbelieves this angel. He's a priest of the temple. He sees the angel in front of him while he's doing services in the temple of God. And he doesn't believe what's being uh, heralded to him, what's being spoken to him by this angel. But in contrast to that, you have this woman, this teenage mother, who is given a story that she's going to bear the Messiah. And she says, let it be unto me as you say. That the contrast between here's somebody who's very learned, has all of the privileges of society, and fails to believe. And here's somebody who has nothing of the poorest class, who was a woman, who has great faith. And so within that structure, it's meant to be a celebration, but sometimes we can overlook that uh, within our uh, current context. Mary of Magdalene, I mean, I love this story. You know, she has so many points where she anoints the Messiah. She sees his value. She takes perfume that's worth a year's wages. So, you know, in modern terms, maybe like $50,000, depending on where you sit on the scale of what uh, wages in America today. But she takes a bottle of perfume worth about 50 grand and spills it all over Jesus's feet. And the disciples say, what waste? And Jesus says, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing to me. She has recognized my value. She has recognized the fact that I have poured myself out a very expensive gift 
upon many people who will not recognize it as value, as valuable, and a lot of it will spill on the ground unused. She gets what the gospel is. She gets the story of salvation. She gets that the angels could look at my sacrifice and say, what waste? So many people won't be benefited by it. What waste? So she anoints the Messiah. She's also the first one at his tomb, right? She's like the first evangelist of his resurrection. So very prominent figure. New Testament, uh, three more. Lydia, Lydia, a seller of purple. Um, Paul talks about her supporting his ministry. So he was not uh, financially wealthy, independently wealthy, but Lydia was. And because she, in that society, was able to make a living for herself, uh, which was in many cases very rare, um, she was able to support his ministry. And so she was a boss. She was an entrepreneur boss who made it into the scriptures. Uh, Phoebe, Paul also commends her. She's a, a, what they call a deacon, even though we might use the term deaconess, that wasn't a term that they used uh, back in the first century. There wasn't like this distinction between a male deacon and a female deacon. And a lot of times deacon just meant, it just meant servant. It wasn't a position within the church that didn't happen until later on in history where we have like pastor, elder, deacon. That's something that happened later on in the future. Uh, but in the beginning of the first century, to be a deacon was to be a pastor of a church. Uh, so she was leading first century churches in a very modern day pastoral way. Same thing with Priscilla. Priscilla was the wife of Aquila and she was an apostle, right? She was uh, planting churches with her husband and Paul commends her, uh, you know, uh, alongside him. She was teaching the gospel. She was using uh, her brain and her ability to teach. Uh, and Paul did not discourage her for being used of God that way. And so she had access to education at some level, and she and her husband were able to be teachers of the faith. And so we see a lot of women in the Bible, and this is just a few, uh, that sometimes we get skipped over and we don't tend to tell, tell their tales with a lot of passion and emphasis and merit. And sometimes a lot of the shine uh, goes to some of the male counterparts within the Bible who are very prominent, right? There's no denying that. But I just, as we celebrate Women's History Month, I want to celebrate these women of the Bible. And I want to give you a different lens to begin to look for these gems and these jewels of human beings uh, who were operating under great constraints of their culture, great constraints of their time, using all of the strength of what it means to be a woman uh, for, to their advantage, right? And to the advantage of the gospel and to the advantage of other women and of their people and of their society and of their communities. And so this is a, a moment to celebrate some of the great things that women have done. I hope you enjoy this uh, message today. We're going to continue uh, with some more podcasts this month, but we're going to talk about some prominent female theologians on some of our future podcasts, but I'm just glad that you guys could, could just stick around and, uh, you know, listen to some of this insight. As far as me, where does that put us here in the 21st century, um, celebrating Women's History Month? You know, I honestly, I, I have to recognize that I stand on the shoulders of giants, right? The privileges that are afforded to me right here in the location that I occupy 
and the state that I occupy and the church that I occupy, that this was all paved, right? Somebody else paved the way for me. Some other woman before me who spoke up, who said something, who said, I'm not taking this anymore, right? Uh, who, who made some people uncomfortable in their protest, that the fact that I can vote, the fact that I can own property, the fact that I can go to work, the fact that I can report a rape case and be taken seriously, like all of these things are because other women did something. And sometimes you might have to make an uncomfortable stink. You might have to open your mouth and you might have to stand for something at some point in your life. Uh, their circumstances may call for it. And people around you may tell you to be quiet. They might discourage you from speaking out. They might think you're being too radical. But really, you're paving the way for somebody else. If you can move the dial forward just an inch, then the people behind you are going to benefit from that. And somebody else will take it another inch and another inch and just keep pushing this dial forward uh, until there's a full inclusion and full equality uh, in the gospel, uh, Galatians. There is neither male nor female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, but all are one in Christ Jesus. And Paul was trying to break down the economic and social and hierarchical barriers that stood between these groups, between the slave and the free, between the Jew and the Gentile, and between male and female. And he was, wasn't trying to break down the ontology of that and saying there's no such thing as a man and a woman. He's saying there's no such thing as there shouldn't be any class distinctions here. We're all one. We're all one human race. And so as we move towards that ultimate ideal that God has for us, uh, the, the dignity with which he has implanted in every human being, uh, make sure that you speak out for somebody else and walk with a sense of gratitude. And I'm walking with a sense of gratitude for those who have gone before me. And so thanks for listening in and I will see you next week.